Hi, everybody, and welcome back to season two of the Writers Co-op. We are so excited to be back. <laughs> I'm Jenny Gritters. <laughs> and this is Wudan Yan. Whew, happy, what month is it? Is it September? <laughs> How is it fall? What's happening? <laughs> yeah, I don't like fall. I mean, I, I don't like the idea that time passes so quickly. So don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Wudan, how was your pandemic summer break? Uh, I promise I won't break out in song every two seconds. My pandemic summer was a lot. 2020 has been a lot. I spent a lot of time outdoors. I got married. I had a move kind of unexpectedly. There's been a lot to deal with in the interim. I got a therapist. What about you, Jenny? <laughs> you say those things with like a lot of chill, but they're a big deal. You got married. <laughs> like, like that's not small. Life for me has been wild and also completely mundane. I think that's how the pandemic is. My baby is now nine months old and he's crawling, which means we have to baby proof everything in our house. So it's been chaos. And I made the decision to put him in daycare because I cannot focus in my house with him here screaming upstairs. It was a really hard decision, you know, especially because it's the pandemic, but I think it's the right one. So, you know, it turns out childcare and being a working mom feels really no win, which I didn't expect. I thought I could like game the system, which feels very typical of Jenny. And <laughs> you, you can't game that system, I have discovered. So I also, you know, along those lines, I hit a really major burnout point in mid-August last month because I was working so much, basically taking care of my kid, you know, three quarters of the time while my husband, who's a nurse, was still working long hours at the hospital. So as a result, I took off pretty much all of this month. I took a few weeks of actual vacation and then I've sort of been slow roll trying to figure out what else I want to do. The recalibration was good, but like, yeah, I just had a full on, like, I can't go on breakdown. So I canceled a bunch of projects. I think it was really the right call. Let's see. I went to the Oregon coast and the San Juan islands and I redid my office because I'm going to have to work here for like the next 11 years for forever. Uh, for forever. Um, yeah, I gave myself a raise. So yeah, like I said, both busy and totally boring. <laughs> Burnout has definitely been a big theme of my life these past few months and probably for a lot of people too, right? Because we're all doing the same things, mostly in the same places. And I would say that burnout is a big reason why I started seeing a therapist, which has been really, it's been really good. So letter of recommendation. Yeah, co-sign that letter of recommendation. So let's talk about the season of the Writers Co-op. We made it here somehow to season two. So Dan, how are we doing things differently this season? So many things. So first, instead of us talking all the time, we are interviewing freelance creatives on how they run their businesses. In short, I think all their stories do a great job of encapsulating what we talked about in season one, finding clients, determining their rates, how they run their freelance business, their values, etc. Yeah, I think one of the really fun things about recording these episodes for me has been learning from other people. All of the people we've talked to so far have been really candid about their business plans, the way they think about money, how much money they make, work-life balance, all that. So I have learned a lot and I hope that you all will find them really helpful as well. So Wudan, who is our guest for our first episode? This week for the launch of season two, we have Maya Kossoff. Maya is a writer and editor based in Brooklyn, New York. You may know her from the internet. <laughs> in 2016, she helped launch Vanity Fair's vertical, The Hive, which covers technology. 
You might have also read her stuff in the New York Times, Medium's Jen and Marker, spelt M-R-K-R, the Washington Post, Columbia Journalism Review, and so much more. These days, she splits her time between freelancing and copywriting. I'm really excited about this one. Me too. So many of us fall into freelancing. I think Wadin and I were just reading about how many people have become freelancers in the past six months. It's nuts. And I really love the way that Maya thinks about finding ways to do the work you want to do, but then also buoying that work with the things that pay well, because this is how both of us approach this whole thing too. Totally. So let's dig in. Here is my interview with Maya. Thanks so much, Maya, for coming on the show today. It's so lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, you know, these interviews are meant to be pretty informal, and we want to hear about how you've built your freelance business. So tell us, what are you doing right now freelance career-wise? Yeah. So freelance-wise, I'm kind of not doing as much as I normally do. I'm kind of full-time at this agency right now. So this summer, I've kind of let my freelance stuff kind of dwindle, but I have one consistent thought leadership copywriting gig I do freelance. I am signing a contract with Medium to write for them on a regular basis. So that will be like an anchor freelance gig for me. And I kind of pick up assignments here and there. I had one go up to the study hall. I, a friend of mine started a new website about like internet and influencer culture called No Filter. And so I'm writing a piece for her site. So kind of doing this and that here and there. That sounds super, super busy. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I don't know how to not be busy all the time because I feel like I'm so used to it from full-time freelancing that now only working nine to five, I'm like, where's my homework assignment? Like, where's my extracurriculars? Like, I feel like I need something else to do. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's just the fault of our generation that we always feel like we need to be perpetually busy. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Maya, let's go back a little. And I want you to tell me about what it was like growing up for you and what your relationship was with money when you were a child. Because Jenny and I talked about this on season one, and we think those experiences are really foundational in how we think about money and how we think about money and how that trickles into how we run our business. So yeah, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I agree. I feel like the way that you're raised to deal with money is super formative. My parents are divorced. I grew up primarily in a single parent household, lower income. You know, I never had like an allowance growing up. I didn't really, you know, there was no kind of like fiscal literacy for me when I was younger. I didn't really learn how to save money. I'm frankly like still learning how to save money as an adult, (laughs) but I worked starting in high school. My first job I got when I was 15 and I kind of always had a job and I was always like babysitting on the side for people or, you know, like doing odd jobs to make money. So it was like very clear to me from a very early age that there was, you know, no kind of safety net for me in, in the form of like family money or generational wealth or anything like that. And so it became very important for me to kind of hit the ground running and making money where I could. So how did that impact what you were doing earlier in your career? Did you have any financial fallbacks at that time? What were you up to? Yeah, so I graduated from uh, J school in 2014. I went to Syracuse and 
the week before I graduated, I got an offer for a post-grad internship with Business Insider. And I'd always kind of viewed moving to New York as this kind of like intangible thing for me that I couldn't do (laughs) because everybody I knew who ended up in New York was working at an upkeep internship. Their parents were paying for them to live in the NYU dorms over the summer. And that wasn't really a possibility for me and for a lot of people I knew. And so I had kind of already written off the idea of moving to New York, which I had been told over and over again in college was like the epicenter of where all the media stuff happened. And if you weren't there, then you weren't going to really work in media. And that's that. And so I got this offer and it was a full time 40 hour a week thing. And so, you know, I didn't have anything else going on. So I accepted the offer. (laughs) I graduated and I moved down to the city. And my mom's family lives out in the Rockaways in Queens, which had just been decimated by Sandy, like two years prior to this. So it wasn't like the cool, fun Rockaways of today. It was like, no boardwalk, everything's kind of in ruins still. And I moved out there with them and stayed with them for a summer while I was like, you know, making 13 or $14 an hour at BI. And I don't really have like a safety net. I didn't really start my career with anything like that. And so at the beginning of my career, it was very important to me to have a stable gig. And by that, I kind of only knew to look for full-time work because because I, I felt so kind of financially insecure. I was, I kind of felt like I, I needed a stable way to be making money. And so my internship at BI turned into a full-time job where I was reporting on startups and venture capital and Uber. From that point on for a few years, I was like, you know, this makes the most sense for me. I don't have a savings account. I don't have, you know, I have like $50,000 in student loan debt. Like this is the most viable path forward for me is not freelancing. It's working in a job like this. So I know you stayed at staff jobs for a while, right? After Business Insider, you went to work for Vanity Fair and then this new gawker, and then a little for the New York Times, right? So tell me a little about how you made the decision to go freelance. Yeah, I mean, when everything kind of imploded with new gawker very quickly, I didn't really have time to think about it. I just knew I had to quit. So I did quit. And suddenly I was freelancing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I kind of made that decision for myself quickly. And I suddenly was kind of finding myself thrust into the world of freelancing during the same week that there were mass layoffs at like BuzzFeed and Huffington Post and all of these other websites. So I was suddenly on the market with all of these other very talented reporters and writers and editors. Because of the way that the Gawker thing played out, it was so public that I was very fortunate to have a lot of people seeing what was happening as it was happening and, you know, immediately coming to me with, offers to write a piece for them or to, you know, like help edit or like whatever they could throw at me, I would take. I was not picky at the time and had never freelanced before. It was kind of my, my, my worst nightmare was to be entering freelancing kind of, it was voluntary. I obviously quit my job voluntarily, but suddenly like that and with no kind of foresight, I had no savings account. I think I had $1,200 in my checking account and it was not the way I kind of wanted to start a freelancing career to the extent that I ever thought I would have one. It was very kind of sudden and it took me a while to kind of find my sea legs. I still feel like I'm finding my sea legs. I'm interested in hearing more about this, mostly because with the coronavirus pandemic, there are so many people losing their jobs due to the shifting market. Were there things you did as you were on your way out that you think set you up to get assignments from other publishers and editors? Not intentionally, if it happened like that. But also, when you look at someone like leaving their job after, you know, a couple weeks of employment there, I think for a lot of editors, that's probably like, 
oh, we don't want to work with that person. Like that person must be hard to work with. Like, I don't think it telegraphed something good about me that I was, you know, quitting the way I did, (laughs) Uh, you know, like maybe I was like a problem employee. I don't know. There was no like thoughtfulness behind that. I don't think I was barely long there long enough to make like one paycheck. There was nothing I did to kind of set myself up for success in terms of like finding ways to freelance immediately. Obviously, like I use my platform on Twitter to connect with editors and, you know, people who were hiring and who could bring me on to write a piece or whatever. I met with a lot of editors kind of in the wake of the fallout of us leaving Gawker, but there was nothing intentional about the way I did anything. Say more about using Twitter, because we get a lot of questions about this, actually. Like, how good is Twitter as a networking tool? What is the best way to use it? I've when I think about people who are good at Twitter, you definitely come to mind. For me, Twitter has been incredibly helpful in a professional sense. Like I think that it's helped me meet so many other writers and connect with so many editors. And particularly in that moment, it was really instrumental because of the way that the Gawker thing played out. It did kind of play out on Twitter. And so it was kind of just like ground zero for that entire thing. And so a lot of editors immediately DM'd me or emailed me who had my email address. And it became and always has been for, you know, other assignments and other times in my career, like a really helpful platform for connecting with editors. I don't know how much that has to do with the size of my platform and kind of how public facing I have been in the past as like a full time reporter. But yeah, I would I would say Twitter has has been such a boon to me. And I mean, it's, it's so bad in so many other ways, but it has also been very helpful to me in terms of connecting with editors. And when you say connecting with editors, it's a DM. It's like uh, you're riffing on something, <laughs> just constantly <laughs> replying. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. What, what are the rules of engagement, if you will? Yes, I think for <laughs> me, it's like I will follow an editor or an editor will follow me and then the other person follows back and then maybe there's something I very dumbly tweeted about that they DM me and they're like, Hey, this would be a good piece. Like, why don't we talk about this? And then I'm like, you're right. I should not tweet all of my ideas or I will come to them with an idea. If they're an editor who I've been wanting to work with, I'll follow that publications kind of like guide for pitching, but I'll start with like a DM and just be like, Hey, I'm not pitching you via DM, but if I had this idea, like who would be the best, are you the best person to contact? And if so, can I like shoot you an email or something like that? I think it's like not being too, I don't know. I think that there's ways to do it poorly. So I'm I'm wary to give like advice in like a template because I don't want anyone to necessarily like, I don't know. I just feel like there's lots of ways it could go wrong. But I've had a lot of luck just kind of like building a rapport by you fave some tweets and then you like respond to some tweets and then you're going back and forth. And then there's like a DM and it feels very organic that way. And that's kind of been the way that I've worked with like some of my favorite editors is it starts by like a very kind of authentic, genuine, not forced back and forth on Twitter. I love this. It really resonates with what Jenny and I talked about in season one, instead of calling networking, networking, which sounds terrible, calling it relationship building, which is basically exactly what you described just on the Twitterverse. When you were freelancing, you know, starting when you first quit Gawker and was thrust off the deep end. How did you decide what assignments to take on? Definitely. Well, in the beginning, I wasn't picky. I said yes to everything. And I didn't know that I didn't have to do that. Um, I felt like I was like barely treading water at that point. And I needed like all of the income I could find because I, you know, I was so new to this. And I was suddenly without the source of income I'd been kind of anticipating I would have for the year. I pitched things. People came to me with ideas. I said yes to everything. I was doing lots of journalism. I started kind of exploring 
corporate freelance work at that point too, which I'd never done before. I'd never done any kind of content marketing, copywriting, like anything like that. And then as time went on, after the first couple months were under my belt, money started coming in and I could start saving money. I found it easier to have some agency and saying no to assignments or like telling myself I didn't have to do everything all the time, because that's kind of my inclination as a worker all the time is to be like, a yes man. And it's like being like, oh, what's the worst quality about me? I'm a perfectionist. But like, I really, I like really have a hard time like saying no to things. And that really extended to freelancing because of the way I started freelancing, because I felt like I had to do everything because I, I like really needed to make money and pay my rent. But yeah, over time I got kind of pickier and I started understanding that the rate that was offered to me was not necessarily the rate that I had to accept. And, you know, I think like resources, and talking to other freelancers and like learning from from other people was like really kind of invaluable to me those first few months. But it definitely took probably two or three months of like learning that I didn't have to do everything all the time. And there was also things like, I remember one time an editor at the New York Times opinion section had like asked me if I wanted to write a piece for her. And so I like sent this person over an idea. She was like, that's great. Will you write it for us? I was so naive. Like I was so new to freelancing. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be in the New York Times. This is amazing. Like, yeah, I'll just write this piece without talking to her about like the fee for it or whatever. And I wrote the whole thing on spec basically. And just like, didn't know that I didn't like, I didn't need to do that. But I guess I sent her a draft of it. And she was like, this is so great. But yeah, we can't like take this. And I was like, okay, well, is there like a kill fee that you're going to give me for it? Like, what's the rate? And she was like, no, no, we only like accept things on stack. I felt so burned by that. But I was also like, just I was so naive. Like I there were so many things I didn't know at that point about freelancing that I like, didn't realize I didn't know. <laughs> and I don't mind like talking about how dumb I was then because I feel like if I talk about it now, people will maybe learn something from me. <laughs> but so it was a lot of trial and error. Yeah, I'm the exact same way. All the mistakes I make and I still make mistakes. Like this morning, I realized I my editor had a 7 a.m. deadline in for an assignment that I had due. Not only was it 7 a.m., it was also 7 a.m. Eastern, and no. I'm on Pacific time. <laughs> and I just completely <laughs> missed that in my scope of work and felt like an idiot. And I was like, of course, I would never agree to that. So, yes, then I went on Twitter and was like, everyone learn from me and just <laughs> double, double check if your scope of work has a time attached to it. <laughs> yeah, still making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell me about how you started getting corporate freelance work, right? Because a lot of our listeners are journalists wanting to get more lucrative assignments. And with journalism, that's obviously hard. So how do you navigate the two? Yeah, that's a good question. I think by merit of having been a tech reporter for a really long time, again, when the Gawker thing happened, and I was suddenly kind of floating like and not doing anything very suddenly and had no work coming in in addition to you know editors at publications reaching out to me I also had corporate folks DMing me and so this woman who runs this PR marketing thought leadership agency that works primarily with people from underrepresented backgrounds people who are first-time founders lots of women people of color queer people DM'd me and was like hey I'm looking for a ghostwriter for some of my clients like do you want to do that work and like Again, this is someone who has followed my career for a while just by merit of like seeing me on Twitter and knows I'm like a business and tech reporter, but also understands that I, you know, don't have a background in in ghostwriting or in, in thought leadership. And so 
I felt kind of lower stakes because she knew my background and where I was coming from and what like the work I typically do. So she knows I'm not like an expert in this, but it definitely feels like the first time I take on some of these, you know, freelance corporate assignments for the first time, or at least last year when I was doing it for the first time, it felt like people were placing a lot of trust in me. And I was very scared that I was going to mess it up because, you know, I'm used to one kind of writing and it's not corporate copywriting or whatever. But they started writing for her and it was consistent. It was good money. And, you know, it like taught me new skills and it like a, a new way to write that I didn't know I could do before. And from that point on, you know, there's other tech people who follow me on Twitter who saw what was happening with the Gawker thing and reached out. And so there were a lot of like one-off copywriting assignments. So kind of like writing an email newsletter for Skillshare, you know, things like that. Slightly more lucrative than like a piece for a website or a magazine would be maybe. And typically like the same amount of work or maybe slightly less work. Those kind of started coming in. And then 14 months ago, I guess, late last spring, I got an offer to go in-house at the Times for six months. And so I had just finally gotten in the swing of things with freelancing. And then the New York Times offered me this like life raft. And they were like, do you want to come here for six months? And I was like, yeah, absolutely I do. And so it was a contract thing. It was working with our news product team. It was really fun. It wasn't the kind of work I'm used to doing, but it was it was great. And so I kind of stopped freelancing while I was there because you know I was suddenly making more money than like on an annual basis than I ever made previously in journalism. I also didn't like have an, I never got like an anchor gig. Like I wasn't freelancing long enough to like develop one of those. And so I went in house at the times. I was there for six months. I left at the end of 2019 when my contract was up and I started freelancing again. And then when I was freelancing in early 2020 for the first like four months of the year, I developed like a really good series of freelance corporate clients that I just didn't have before. It was that ghostwriting client I had talked about earlier I had signed a contract to do editorial for this small female founded VC firm, a couple of other similar clients. I was doing some work for my alma mater at the J school at Syracuse, a couple of other things like that. And so I had finally, like I had built this like stable of like freelance corporate work and it was all just word of mouth and people in my network. And I hate like being like, Oh, there are people in my network, but it really is like people who know me from my reporting, who I've developed relationships over the years because I've, you know, covered companies like theirs, or there are people who just know me through other friends of ours or anything like that. And, you know, they hear that I need editorial work, and they need someone who can edit all of their social copy and their editorial that they're putting on their website. And it's like a good fit. And it's easy. I suspect if I had another beat that was not business and tech, it would have been more difficult to get clients like that. But I do feel like depending on what your beat is, there's room for you to kind of find your niche if, if corporate freelance work is kind of what you're hoping to do. That's really great advice. And I love it. I wonder if you can talk a little, Maya, about applying for these different things, right? Or just taking really the amalgam of experiences you've had and reflecting that on something like your resume. Like, do people still ask for your resume? How do you make the skills you have from all these different parts of your career widely applicable to different types of writing? I think, yes, people still ask for my resume. And I think that what I do is kind of market myself. And the other thing is like, where I am now, where I'm doing corporate work full time during the day, Going into that is it's, you know, when I was applying for that job, when I was applying for other jobs like it, when I was applying for kind of full-time copywriter jobs and things like that, I realized I didn't know how to market myself because I never had to as a journalist. You get hired in different ways in journalism that I think that you do typically 
in like more corporate roles. I got my job at Vanity Fair because I was poached while I was still at BI. Ditto Gawker when I was at Vanity Fair. The editors that I worked with at the New York Times followed me on Twitter and they connected with me through that medium. I've only kind of recently come to grasp the fact that I don't really know how to market myself and I'm trying to get better at that. And I also kind of hate all of the terms that <laughs> that people in marketing use to describe themselves as like storytellers, which is like technically true, but oh God, it's like every, everyone's a storyteller. <laughs> so I'm trying to kind of find that balance where I'm like accurately describing the things I do for work during the day, but also like trying to not make myself sound like horrible in the process because I don't want to describe myself as like a marketing storyteller guru. Um, <laughs> so I feel like there's enough people like that. I don't need to contribute to that. I'm still kind of like figuring out what my identity is now that I've like had this job for like four months or five months. I'm also trying to get back into writing more for myself kind of on the side. So doing more reported pieces, doing more journalism, I've kind of let that lapse since April or May. And the next most important thing I need to do now is like find that balance of, you know, doing both of those things successfully and also like explaining to people what it is I do. <laughs> so I'm definitely still grappling with that. I'm really curious to hear more about how coronavirus changed the way you work. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Because it feels like the copywriting stuff came at the right time <laughs> when journalism was kind of, or is still in free fall. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, definitely. Earlier this year in January, so after I left the New York Times, I started applying for jobs, both journalism and like not journalism, like at full force. So between January and March, I applied for something like 120 jobs. I oh read about God. it somewhere. I don't know the exact <laughs> number, but it's like something like that. And so I was just kind of like, I need something full time, like freelance isn't working for me. And then obviously, as this is all happening, freelance starts working for me. And I'm like, I develop like anchor gigs and I did all the things that I like didn't really have enough time to do the year before. But then coronavirus happens. And then I'm like, oh, no, the bottom's gonna fall out. I need to find something full time now. Like, you know, and so it was it kind of sucked because I'd finally gotten into the swing of things with freelancing. And I was like doing really well at it. And then COVID happened and I was like, oh no, all these budgets are going to dry up. Like, I don't want to be like, I, I would hate it if I lost like three of these anchor gigs and suddenly like didn't have a means of like making money anymore. Time to continue looking for full-time things in earnest. And so COVID was absolutely a motivator for me going back in-house somewhere. What also happened was, you know, I was in like third and fourth round interviews with all of these places. None of them were journalism outlets because at this point, like I had been... <laughs> like ghosted by or been rejected by like three or four different, you know, journalism related jobs I'd applied to. I think that also all the news outlets kind of like freaked out at the start of coronavirus and kind of froze hiring for a lot of roles. And so anything I was in the running for suddenly was like out of my grasp. And it's like, whatever, it sucked, but it's fine. But the same thing started happening with some of these corporate roles where there was like one week, I want to say it was like mid-March or the end of March when the stock market was like falling, falling, falling. And I was like in these last round interviews with these like couple of tech companies, suddenly it seemed like it was a done deal. And and then they were, they wrote back and they were, they were both just like, thanks for your interest. We're not hiring for this role anymore. And I was like, oh no, is this what I have to look forward to? Like, is there, there's, I'm just not going to get a job this year. That's it. Then I had cold applied for my current job on LinkedIn, which again, like I would not necessarily advise that anybody else do, but it did work for me for some reason. The agency I work for had been acquired last year by this like bigger agency. And so I had like a, an intro call with a recruiter from like the big 
acquirer agency. Over the next couple of weeks, I had calls with the people who I now report directly to who are also like former tech journalists in particular. One thing led to another and they made me an offer at the beginning of April. And I was like, I would be so stupid not to take this right now. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with the world in the next X number of months. This is like a life raft for me. That's how I ended up with with my current job. (laughs) Talk a little bit about money. (laughs) I'm curious if you would feel comfortable sharing approximately how much you make right now. I guess that's in addition to this copywriting job. My income from my day job is $95,000. And then my freelance income for this year will probably be about $30,000, $35,000. And that's probably better than I did last year freelance-wise. Wow, that's impressive. So how do you manage? (laughs) How do you manage all these projects? What's your system? Not well. I don't really have a good system. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm seeking advice for new systems to use. My current system is like my day planner that I have to write everything down in or else I'll forget it. And then like a Google spreadsheet of like assignments and like money owed and things like that. And I, I also have like a Google doc where I just like every Monday I open it up and I like write down all of the things I have to do that week, writing assignment wise, and also like work task wise. And then it feels very satisfying to me for some reason to just be able to delete them from that Google Doc. And at the end of the week, when the Google Doc's empty, I get to close it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't really have a good system. Um, I guess like a, a, the Google spreadsheet is like my primary means of keeping myself organized. Yeah, I'm also a very avid Google spreadsheet user. And I track my assignments every month. So when I get an assignment, it goes in a slot and I say when it's due and I always have like an assignments due within the month bracket and it feels really good (laughs) to get everything out of there and move it into like in edits and need payment. Yeah, 100% agree. Tell me about building a career as a freelancer. I mean, it can be tough in all the ways that we've already discussed. I want to hear about how you've built skills and gotten mentorship along the way. Yeah, again, you know, I felt like I was kind of going into it blind last year. And I felt very unsure of myself. I kind of, you know, I thought I was kind of like a one trick pony who could only do one thing, which was write about tech. And I didn't know how that would transfer into being able to do other things. But I've worked with a lot of really great editors during my time as a freelancer. And that has been really invaluable to me and super helpful. I didn't realize how many different editing styles there were until I started putting myself out there more. And I also kind of, when I first started freelancing, I got into this rut where I would like write one story for one publication and then like not pitch another one. And I would just be like, I guess that's it for me. As if it were like not my fault that I weren't pitching the editor again to write there as if they wouldn't want me to. It was like a self-fulfilling prophecy where I only ended up writing like one story for all these outlets. And I was like, I guess that's it. I guess, I guess no one wants to hear from me more than once. And it was like, (laughs) No, you just you just haven't been pitching them. Like, get a backbone and get some self-confidence. <laughs> a lot of the skills that I learned were very self-taught. I mean, I've also relied a lot on, like, other freelancer resources. Like, I am a member of Study Hall, and I became a member last year after I went freelance. I didn't really think it served a purpose for me when I was in-house because I wouldn't have used any of the resources there. But I was, like, grasping at straws last year, just, like, kind of learning how everything works as a freelancer. And I didn't, like, all of my friends at that point were, like, in-house at different places, even they couldn't help me. (laughs) So I I found resources like that to be helpful. Anything that could just like explain how you ask for payment or what a good pitch looks like for this outlet or something like that. I also think I'm very fortunate in one way, which is that a lot of editors who I work with 
have come to me first. And these are others who I like have like ongoing relationships with. I'm thinking about like Michelle Legro at Medium, for example, and having people like that kind of like champion your work and always like be in your corner is super, super helpful. And I feel very lucky that that's something that has been afforded to me in certain instances. In, in terms of like learning skills along the way, it's been trial and error. It's been like a lot of self-taught stuff. It's been learning from forums and from other people who are way better at freelancing than I am. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I feel like that's the beauty of freelancing is that there is so much learning on the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maya, last question for you. Tell me about the best business decision you've made as a freelancer. Oh, man. Definitely starting a few fund. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had started one way sooner, but you know, I didn't really have the means when I was in-house because I was making significantly less money then. And it really hasn't been until the past probably six or eight months that I've been able to kind of have like a real like savings account. And obviously, like I wish I'd had this when I left Gawker. Like it would have been amazing to not have to worry about paying my rent the week after I quit. But again, it's all trial and error. I'm learning as I go. And that's one of the things I learned (laughs) then. And, you know, I'm very happy to have something like that now. For people who don't know what a FU fund is, what is it? Yes. And I'm sorry for cursing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Okay. It's a fund that you save up so that if you ever need to leave your job for some reason, you have enough savings to kind of buoy you until you can find another means of income. It's really no different than like a savings account. But (laughs) I, (laughs) to me anyway, maybe some people have it in like a different account, but I like think of it in terms of like, you want like three months of expenses, like in that account. So, you know, three months of rent, three months of utilities, three months of payments on your car or, you know, student loan payments or something like that, just so that you have the confidence and ability. If you ever need to say, walk out of your job after three weeks of working there, (laughs) you can do that and you're safe and you feel confident in doing that. You're not like making money, make decisions for you. Yeah, absolutely. And so are you putting a little bit of money every month into that? How does that work for somebody who wants to start one? Yeah, definitely. I started it with a full check I'd received from, I think it was like a story I'd written for one of the medium pubs like earlier this year or last year into a separate account. And I kind of started building from there. And then once I got this job, it was easier for me to make like more steady contributions to that fund. So, you know, like $800 turned into $2,000 turned into $4,000, et cetera. And it's definitely a privilege to be able to put money away like that every month or every paychecks every two weeks. And I, I don't take it for granted, but I've been without it for so long. Like this is the first time in my adult life in like 28 years that I have a savings account. So I'm proud of myself for, for getting to this point right now. I'm in everything. But yeah, I, I would say putting away what you can when you can is probably good advice. But I am far from someone who should be giving financial advice at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> But that's, that, that's my two cents. Yeah, I love it. That's super great. Well, that's all I had today. Thanks again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me on. Maya is so great. I think my favorite bit here is definitely about those Twitter rules for engagement. I'm super bad at Twitter. So the other day I looked and I've had a Twitter account for 10 years, but like (laughs) y'all, I have barely ever used it. I think recently I've been pulled back in because of this podcast and like many of you exist on Twitter. And so that's a good place to talk to everybody. And I know most journalists hang out on Twitter too, but I'm, I'm really bad at it. So I love hearing about her talk about authentic engagement and conversation 
because I think it really tracks with how we look at networking and connecting with other people. It's like be a nice, normal human being because the person on the other side of the screen is also probably a nice, normal human being. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I, I think the way that she's described it is really good networking. I've honestly not used Twitter in that bold, very gutsy way that Maya described, but editors have definitely reached out to me via Twitter DM for assignment details. And I feel like my response is always, please email me immediately. <laughs> I have no capacity to remember to respond on Twitter. Yeah. I'm really bad at DMs. I think it's funny you say you're not bold on Twitter though, because I think that many of us would beg to differ. I am Um, controversial on Twitter. Let's put it that way. (laughs) This is true. So I also liked what Maya said about branding. Like I am constantly fiddling with my portfolio website because I'm constantly changing my work balance. So I appreciate that she said that it's hard because it is like if you're doing a mix of journalism and non-journalism, you don't really fit in a comfortable quote unquote box. And so lately I've even been trying to decide if I should call myself a journalist. Like, am I a writer? Am I an editor? Am I a journalist? Am I a storyteller? It just gets weird and complicated. But I also think that agility is why my business is successful. I think that's probably the case for Maya too. How do you feel about that, Udan? Do you have sentiments for how you come up with the phrasing that's on your website? Yeah, I have nothing really valuable to share, which surprise, sometimes I don't have valuable things to say. Besides it being really hard, you know, Jenny, one thing you said recently on a panel with Tim Herrera is that you want to make your brand yourself. And so I think when clients hire me, whether it's for journalism or brand work, they want my approach to storytelling, research, reporting. So maybe, I don't know, to an extent, it doesn't matter how I brand myself. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I, that's interesting. I mean, we will never know, right? I think I did say in that panel that like, it's important not to hitch yourself to anybody else's wagon, essentially, right? Like your priority is you. And that's a good way to think about that. Maybe I'm going to cut myself some slack uh, in terms of branding. (laughs) Exactly. If they're hiring me for my eye and my taste, then great, I guess. I mean, in my resume, though, I do break down the types of writing that I do, whether it's institutional, journalistic, for brands. Etc. So, can we also talk about the fuck you fund? I really love <laughs> that idea. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. I'm really into it too. My friend and colleague Paulette Perhatch actually coined that term "fuck off fund," and it is exactly how Maya describes. It's a savings account in essence that lets you quit your job, walk away from something terrible, right? Like break up with your boyfriend and like get a place of your own, and just take care of yourself if you need it. Do you have one? I don't call it a. F- often, but I definitely have a lot of money in the hopper if I need to pull out of something really fast. I think I mentioned this in season one. I've had it for a few years. It's a good cushion. It's good for my brain that wants stability, some semblance of it, (laughs) at least. What about you, Jenny? I actually feel like I have this for the first time in a substantial way right now. It's probably because I knew I was taking maternity leave before, so I was a little bit more hesitant to dig into our savings. And now that the baby is here. This month, I was able to basically dump all of my projects in the trash and agree not to get paid for a month. And it was because I needed it for my own mental health and for my family. And so having that savings compiled, like it made a really big difference mentally. It feels like it's a huge deal. Yeah, agreed. I mean, that's the mental part that I think that whether you want to call it the fuck off fund or savings, that's what makes it worth it. Yeah, this is part of why we're so pushy about making money on this podcast and on the internet at large. I think, you know, making money and having reserves helps you make better decisions that are more aligned with your values 
values. So you can make choices out of freedom and not fear. And you can take a break if you need it, just like I just did, because you will need it at some point as a freelancer. My husband and I ended up putting about $1,000 a month into our savings account for the past few years, which is how we built it up. And it's funny, you know, Maya said that she's bad at savings, but I actually think from your conversation, it sounds like she's actually pretty good at it, or at least like better than the average person savings and budgets are really hard, especially now in the middle of a pandemic. But if you can chunk some money away, I was talking to a client about this, even like $50 a month, it really makes a big difference. I think in terms of how you run your business to know that you have a safety net. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Some freelancers I talk to actually say, you know, for every like third or fourth story I get paid, that entire paycheck just goes into savings. Super interesting. Okay. Well, on that note, we are going to head out. We still have our Patreon program going strong this season, and we hope you'll become a member if you're not one already. Yes. We also have some new tiers that we've added. So you should go check those out. There's one for pitch review, which includes a monthly pitch workshop and advice tailored from Mudan and I about your pitch. There is another option that involves small group coaching with a few other people. So you and three other people meet with Houdan or I, and you get community and advice on all the issues you're facing. We think it's great because a lot of us face the same issues and it's really a great solidarity moment to hear that you are not alone. And then we still have that classic all access membership, which means resources alongside every single episode. You'll get some of those today based on the notes that Maya sent to us and you'll get those for every episode along with event discounts, resource discounts, all sorts of other fun stuff. Just a plug to say we'd also love for you to subscribe to our podcast if you don't already. Leave us a review. It helps us get noticed on iTunes and brings more people into this fold. As we talk about improving freelancers' businesses and lives, the more people, the better. You know what we love to say about rising tides. Okay, well, we will see you on the internet. Goodbye, Wudan. Bye, Jenny. Season two of The Writer's Co-op is made possible by a grant from the International Women's Media Foundation. Our editor is Susan Vallett, and Jen Monier handles research, admin, and more as our producer. The Writer's Co-op is hosted by me, Jenny Gritters, and Wudan Yan. 